Well, good evening. Good evening. I know there's been a little bit of confusion about when this class starts. Is it 645 or is it 7? And I had every intention of starting at 645, but I noticed last week that people seem to be really comfortable and used to the 7 o'clock start time. So I'm, for now, let's have like a soft start time of-ish in between 645 and 7. We'll get started by 7 because um, I, I don't want to squash fellowship. I, I've noticed that there's a lot of good fellowship going on and I think that's really special. Uh, so it'll be 7-ish. Or yeah, seven six fifty nine seven ish, when we get going for our class. And in future semesters, would we tweak that? We 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 probably will tweak that once I figure out more what I'm doing uh, as the Wednesday night teacher. But I'm really glad you're here. Take your Bible and please turn to First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one. And as you're doing so. I'm going to open this up in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another week where we can come together and to study your word. We thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we would be lost in hopelessness and darkness if it wasn't for the truth of your precious word that's been given to us and it's been preserved throughout the centuries. And you have given to us in it everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Help us to understand your truth with a comprehension that can only come from the Holy Spirit and help us to submit to your truth with a view towards application and obedience that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. Please teach us what we need to know tonight from 1 Timothy chapter 1. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you were with us last week, we opened up our study in 1 Timothy The theme for this study is from verse 18 and into 19. Fight the good fight. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. That's our theme for our study throughout the book of 1 Timothy, fighting the good fight. Every Christian has been called to a fight. Every Christian is called to engage in the fight of the Christian life. You may never actually take up arms in an actual physical conflict, but as we see from passages such as 2 Corinthians 10 and Ephesians 6, you are in spiritual warfare whether you recognize it or not. Every day you wake up in the Lord's service, you're in his army, as the old song that we used to sing in Sunday school, I'm in the Lord's army, would remind us. You're engaging in a battle against the evil one and his agents. You're waging war, as Paul reminds us, against worldviews and philosophies. In 2 Corinthians 10 5, every notion raised against the knowledge of Christ. You're seeking to bring God glory. You're seeking to make Christ known. You're seeking to call sinners who are currently POWs entrapped by the evil one to call them by God's grace using his word. And ultimately, you're just a tool in his hands, calling them from darkness into light. As we're reminded in Luke 17, we're unworthy servants doing our duty. 
engaged in the master's service. That's how Paul saw himself. Paul describes himself, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command, not suggestion, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul doesn't stray very far from the military mindset. He knows that he is a messenger sent by God to proclaim about Jesus Christ, and he's a man under authority. He's an apostle by command from God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Paul knew that he was a soldier in a spiritual warfare, and he was reminding Timothy that he too is a soldier in spiritual warfare. As we read in 1 Timothy and then later in 2 Timothy, Timothy would occasionally struggle with being timid. Potentially, even at some points, potentially cowardly. Where the battle would be fierce, the struggle would be intense, the cost would be high. There was a risk that Timothy might shrink back. And that same temptation, if we're being honest, knocks at the door of our heart As well, what Paul says to Timothy is for you and for me. Now, first Timothy, second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles. And there's much in these three books that pertains to pastoral ministry. There's much that discusses how church should be conducted, how we should act in what Paul calls the household of God, the local church. There's descriptions of what qualifies a church leader, church elders, church deacons. But these books are not just for pastors. They're for Christians. They're for you if you're a believer in Christ. Because Paul was a soldier for Jesus. Timothy was a soldier for Jesus. And if you've been born again, then you too are a soldier for Jesus. So how should you conduct yourself? Well, 1 Timothy seeks to answer that question. How do you fight the good fight? Now, I I know, I know that it doesn't always feel like we're in a fight. You wake up, you have your routine, you brush your teeth, you get your coffee, you start your day. If you're a mom, you've got to take care of the kids. If you're a dad, you go to work. Whatever stage in life you're at, you have your routine and it's easy to get stuck in the rut. And it's easy to get stuck in the mundane. And it's easy to think, well, first I do this, then I do this, then I do this. The continual message of the New Testament, particularly the Pauline epistles, is don't forget that there's more than what you can see. There's always more going on around you. You live every day in the midst of a spiritual conflict. So conduct yourself well. Because a day is coming where you will stand before your commanding officer and give an account. We mentioned this last week that Paul always had two dates on his calendar. Just two. Today and that day. And that day was the great day that he would present himself before the Lord. He was always focused on how do I maximize today for God and his glory in light of that great day when I stand before the Lord. Last week, we looked at Warfare 101, Paul's basic instructions to Timothy. Let's read the verses we looked at last week. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In those two verses, those introductory verses, there's so much to unpack. Paul and his own identity, his, his own understanding of who he was and who his mission was. Identity is a word that's talked about a lot these days. Really, for the Christian, your identity is simply this. Once you were blind, but now you can see. 
Once you were lost, but now you are found. Once you were an enemy of God, but now you are a child of God. Paul is a specific type of person. He's an apostle. Apostles no longer exist today. They were specific for the apostolic era, the first century. It's somebody who had seen the risen Christ and had heard from the risen Christ and could bear firsthand eyewitness testimony to that Jesus Christ is the Messiah risen from the dead. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's commissioned by Christ. Timothy's his true child in the faith. Paul had discipled Timothy and mentored Timothy. Most likely, as we talked about last week, Paul did not lead Timothy to saving faith. That was probably, almost assuredly, his mother and his grandmother who had led him to saving faith, the fruit of their legacy at work in Timothy's life. But when Timothy was a young man, about a teenager, maybe late teens, old enough to leave home, but still young enough to be described as a young man, he accompanied the Apostle Paul, beginning in Acts 16, in Paul's missionary journeys. Paul became a mentor, a father figure. To Timothy. There's so much we could comment on that alone pertinent to the local church. Who's discipling you? Who discipled you? I'm sure all of us can think back to seasons in our life of, of individuals, uh, men and, and women, for depending on who you are, who poured into you, who taught you truth. You are today who you are because of people who've had an impact on you. A sad reality sometimes in our Christian life is that we can tend to ease into cruise control and we fall out of discipleship relationships or we maybe lay off on the gas pedal when it comes to discipling others. I would encourage you and challenge you, ask yourself, who's discipling you and who are you discipling? That's healthy New Testament Christianity. It's not just for the exceptional, for the few. It's expected of all of us that we admonish one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and spur one another on to love and good deeds. It doesn't have to always look like a formal relationship where you meet at Starbucks every Tuesday at 2 p.m. and you go through a Jerry Bridges book. I mean, it can. That's helpful. But there needs to be somebody in your life who has access to you, who can call you out on your sin. You don't keep secrets from who you can speak with and say, I'm struggling in this area. I'm struggling in that area. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? Can you point out things that I might be blind to? And then you need to look over your shoulder, spiritually speaking, behind you. Who's not as far along as you are? Who can you pour into? This can look like serving in Sunday school, children's church, uh, you know, youth ministry. So many different ways this can look. Various degrees of formal or informal. Discipleship is basically helping someone else be more like Christ. Intentionally helping someone else be more like Christ. Well, that was all not in my notes at all, but Timothy, discipleship. Let's keep going. Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not just hyperbole. That's a real benediction and an pleading of God for that grace and mercy and peace. Sustaining grace, continual mercy, experiential peace. That Timothy would need to fight the good fight. Verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, we might be asking ourselves, when does this take place? We can put up the background slide. The title of today's message is Need to Know Basis. 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 11. Need to Know Basis. And here's our background slide. Background of 1 Timothy. As we said, the author is Paul. Here's the question. When was this written? Paul says, verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. We know from church history that this is following Paul's first Roman imprisonment. So this is after the book of Acts. 
approximately A.D. 61-62, Paul has been released from house arrest in Rome. Most likely, he himself did not go to Ephesus because he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that they would not see his face again. He had to go to Macedonia, but he needed to, he needed to minister in Ephesus, so he sent his trusted disciple, Timothy, to minister in Ephesus. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons to do what? To not teach any different doctrine. That's the occasion. Recipient is Timothy, the occasion. Paul left Timothy to shepherd the church in Ephesus, which included the need to contradict false teachers and confirm qualified elders, among other church matters. As we said before, the theme of this book, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience. Paul writes in verse 4, Teach them not to charge them not to teach any different doctrine, verse four, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, in the Ephesian church, what Paul had predicted in Acts 20 was starting to come true. False teachers, including some that he describes in Acts 20 as savage wolves, were starting to prey upon the flock of God in the church of Ephesus. These people we're diving into things that Paul here calls myths and endless genealogies. They were looking at extra-biblical teachings, things that are outside the Old Testament, or they were looking at things like lists and genealogies in the Old Testament, but reading in the white spaces beyond what is warranted to come up with crazy and bizarre doctrines. I'm sure you meet people like this all the time. I mean, if you've ever engaged with a cultist, you've talked with somebody like this. People who go beyond what is clearly written in the scriptures and they develop whole systems of theology or belief, bizarre notions, and they present these in the church, doing the same thing that Satan said in the garden. Has God really said? They say it certain ways like this, like, hey, have you ever read the Book of Mormon? Have you ever read the Pearl of Great Price? Did you know that John 1.1 doesn't actually teach that Jesus is divine? So many different ways to present myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations. But that's the M.O. of tares among the wheat, agents of Satan wreaking havoc in the church. That was starting to happen in the church of Ephesus. Paul sends Timothy saying, tell them to knock it off and repent. Tell them to stop doing what they're doing. Quit messing with God's church. Turn from your wicked ways. As we see that in verse 5, the aim of our charge, why are you doing this, Timothy? The aim of our charge is what? Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of theological instruction, whether it is training up a small little child who doesn't know their right hand from their left hand in the, in the truth of God's word, or whether it's something as extreme as rebuking a wolf among the sheep. The goal of theological instruction, we said this last week, it's not just to win an argument. It's not just to show off how smart you are. It's not just to demonstrate, you know, I have this Bible degree and look at me, listen to me. I know all the answers. No, 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 no. The goal of theological instruction, whether it's training a little child or rebuking a false teacher, is prayerfully that God will use his word to transform the hearer so that they are changed from the inside out. And they would have love that issues, that flows from, like a geyser. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal of theological instruction, or it ought to be. 
Theological instruction that does not have that as its objective does not honor the Lord. We teach the word so that people would be changed by the word. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A pure heart is a heart that's been made clean. A good conscience is a conscience that is in accord with God's standards, the word of God. A sincere faith is a faith without hypocrisy. There's no falsehood. It's a sincere, active trusting in God that works itself out in a person's life. That's the description of what a Christian ought to look like. A person who loves, like Christ, with a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. But sadly, what we're going to see tonight, these false teachers, these wolves, these tares among the wheat, these individuals who are wreaking havoc in the Ephesian church, they've rejected all that. They said, we don't want any piece of that. Let's look at our text for tonight. Certain persons. There's that mention that we saw at verse 3 already. Certain persons. By swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either of what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Now, remember our overarching theme of warfare. You are in a spiritual battle, whether you recognize it or not, whether it feels like it or not. Every day you live life, you are in a spiritual battle. And the sooner you get that into your head, the sooner I get that into my head, the more effective we're going to be for the Lord. There are no off days. There's a reason why Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 describes eternity with Christ as the promised Sabbath rest. If you're looking for pure and satisfying, perfect rest in this life without any struggle, you're going to be disappointed. Yes, we do rest in Christ throughout this life. Absolutely. He's our shepherd. He makes us lie down by green pastures. But permanent, lasting rest where there will be no more fight, where you lay down your weapons, that's in heaven. In the meantime, right now, you're in a warfare. And if you're in a warfare, you need to know your enemy and you need to know your weapons. You need to know your enemy And you need to know your weapons. So that brings us to our outline for tonight. Two realities you need to know. Remember, need to know basis. Two realities you need to know in order to fight the good fight. Two realities. First, you must understand the character of the enemies of the gospel. Now, I want to say one thing at the outset. I'm going to use some pretty formal, harsh words. Enemies, opponents, wolves, tares among the wheat. That does not mean that we shouldn't have compassion on these people. We need to call a spade a spade. Someone who is against God and against God's gospel and against the scripture and who seeks to use the local church as their opportunity for a platform and for self-promotion, they are reprehensible. That's wrong. And it must be called that. I know we need to be people of love. And kindness and compassion, Colossians 4, 6, the same apostle who wrote 1 Timothy 1, also wrote Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to give an answer to outsiders. But we need to remember, in our politically correct culture, it is not 
an ungracious thing to call a wolf a wolf. It is not an ungracious thing to call an enemy an enemy. Two things can be true at the same time. Someone can be an enemy, and you can call them that, and you can also have compassion on them and pray that God would open their eyes and save their soul. So you need to understand the enemies. Understand the character of the enemies of the gospel. Verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, that exact same term that Paul uses in verse 3, certain persons, so we know we're talking about the same people that Timothy was going to Ephesus to rebuke, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying, what they are saying, or the things about which they make confident assertions. Certain persons have swerved, Paul says. These certain persons, they've swerved from something. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We've already seen these certain persons are, verse 3, they're teaching different doctrines. Uh, hetero doctrine, something other than what, what Paul <clears throat> has already taught the church in Ephesus. They're devoting themselves, verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies. And then that results in promoting speculation rather than stewardship. Here, Paul will give us four more characteristics of these enemies of the gospel. This is helpful for us because we can identify those who are friends and conversely who are foes by looking for these characteristics. Jesus told us to judge with right judgment, to make accurate assessments. It is not an unloving thing to call someone an enemy if they're an enemy. What marks them as enemies? Well, first, enemies of the gospel have forsaken righteous conduct. Enemies of the gospel have forsaken righteous conduct. I'm sorry if that's too small of a font. Enemies of the gospel have forsaken righteous conduct. Verse 6a, certain persons by swerving from these. What are the these? We need to ask ourselves, what's the grammatical antecedent? What does these refer to? What do these refer to? The nearest referent that these refers to is what we just saw in verse 5. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look, somebody who's not a real Christian won't ultimately care about these things. They might on the outside. They might present somebody who looks like they have a great conscience, looks like that they have a pure heart. They, look, they might sing their songs loudly on Sunday morning. They might serve at uh, ministry events. Go on missions trips even. But the motive is self-promotion. It's not sincere. They don't ultimately have a good conscience. And it's sometimes hard to tell. Paul's going to describe this reality later in this book. We're going to look at it next semester. But that the wickedness of some people is evident and others it comes out later. But deep down, when it's just them in a dark room, them and the Lord, they don't care about love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Instead, they've swerved away from these. They have forsaken righteous conduct. This Greek word to swerve means to astray, leave the path, deviate from. We see this used only two other times, one more in 1 Timothy and again in 2 Timothy. This is on Paul's mind as he's writing to Timothy. At the end of the book, he says, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 6, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. 
Again, he charges Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. These people, these, these tares among the wheat, these wolves in the local church, they've left righteous conduct. They've left godly behavior. On the outside, they may look like they still practice it, but in their hearts, they've forsaken it. Second, enemies of the gospel not only have forsaken righteous conduct, enemies of the gospel engage in foolish, discuss- foolish discussions. Certain persons, by swerving from these, they've gone from something. What have they gone to? Have wandered away into vain discussion. They have wandered away into vain discussion. Again, this word means to turn aside. Just picture, you know, when you're learning to drive and you're having the hardest time of staying in the lane. Maybe that was just me. But you're learning to drive and you're freaked out by everything going on with the car and you're like starting to swerve out of your lane and your mom or your dad's right next to you saying like, stop, 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 stop. And they're like pretending that they have a break, but they don't have a break. I realize I'm using illustrations that I would use for high schoolers. I'm sorry. It's going to take a while for me to get out of this. But they've swerved aside out of righteous conduct and they're engaging into something that does not honor the Lord. Foolish discussions. It's elsewhere translated as empty talk, empty words. You ever met somebody like this? This type of person is in the church. And again, I'm not thinking of anybody specific in our church, but I've encountered people like this throughout my time. People who they find bizarre notions. They think they know the identity of the Antichrist or they know exactly when the rapture is going to happen or, you know, whatever. They start exegeting the newspaper more than exegeting the scripture. Vain and empty, fruitless and pointless discussions. Instead of occupying oneself with what God has revealed to us, certain people tend to make much about their own wisdom, their own notions. And it leads to just a bunch of hot air. Unprofitable, fruitless, vain discussion. Sometimes people will take a single word from the scripture and take it out of context. And develop a whole theology based on that one word. Paul would call those people word wranglers. It's fruitless. It doesn't build up. It's not using God's word rightly or correctly. It only serves to, in the, in the originator's mindset, make them look like they're a Bible know-it-all. But it doesn't actually sanctify or edify anybody. The Greek word is mataloigia. Mataloigia. Fruitless discussion, vain talking, Strong says. This is a plague in the church. But when you forsake, when you as an individual, and hopefully nobody in here is doing this, but when an individual forsakes simple, sincere faith, a good conscience, a pure heart, obedience to God, loving Christ, serving Christ, something rushes in to fill that vacuum. Self-love, fruitless discussions. Promoting yourself. And that actually leads us to the third point. Enemies of the gospel are motivated by self-serving pride. Verse 7a. Desiring to be teachers of the law. So enemies of the gospel have forsaken righteous conduct. Enemies of the gospel engage in foolish discussions. Enemies of the gospel are motivated by self-serving pride. Paul says here they desire to be teachers of the law. 
These certain persons who have swerved from the good things that listed and have instead wandered away into vain discussion are described as desiring to be teachers of the law. This phrase, teachers of the law, we see it used in Luke and in Acts, describes a certain type of person. Luke 5, 17, on one of those days, as he, the Lord Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Acts 5, 34, jumping ahead to after Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. But a Pharisee, Acts 5, 34, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. The description of Luke 5 and Acts 5, it's not the main point of the passages, but it is interesting to note, these who were teachers of the law are described as people who were important. They were people of significance, and they're people that others would listen to. You find that in the church. Sadly, the church is a place where people who aren't wholly sold out to Christ who aren't committed to the Lord Jesus, who aren't committed to the glory of God, they see it as an opportunity to gather a following. They see it as an opportunity to build their own empire. They see it as an opportunity to puff up their own ego. We mentioned this last week, but Paul writes about this kind of person in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 17, talking about the Judaizers. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. Literally, they want to shut you off from the true gospel, Here's the, the reason why, Galatians 4, 17, that you make much of them, that you may make much of them. False teachers are motivated by pride. They want to be seen as those who should be listened to and paid attention to. They've forsaken righteous conduct. They've wandered into foolish discussions, and they are motivated by self-serving pride. Fourth and finally, enemies of the gospel are cemented in spiritual blindness. Enemies of the gospel are cemented in spiritual blindness. Verse 7b, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're basically like somebody who's acting above their pay grade, talking about more than what they actually understand, spewing doctrines and parroting theological terms that they've heard before without actually submitting to them. You know, you can grasp what the scripture says and not truly understand it. You can grasp what the scripture says and not truly understand it. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we, we Christians, Paul writes, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14. The natural person, meaning the non-Christian. Someone who has not received the Spirit of God. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You say, you may ask, is Paul saying that an unbeliever just cannot grasp what the Bible says? No, 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 no. An unbeliever can grasp what the Bible says to a point. An unbeliever can explain John 3.16. An unbeliever can explain Genesis 1.1. An unbeliever can explain John 5.24, that he who hears these words believes him who sent me is not, uh, he's not in death, but is passed from darkness into life. An unbeliever can explain those things. What it means that they don't understand it, they don't accept it, is that they have not bowed the knee to it in their heart. On an intellectual level, they can explain it to you. But in a level of the, of the heart where, where truth is either received or rejected, they have not bowed the knee and submitted to it. That's why you can have a lot of kids who grow up in the church and they do Awanas or whatever Bible memory verse program or they go to a Christian school or they're homeschooled and they can spit back all of these doctrinal truths don't actually get saved because this is not just a level of intellectual grasping. What we're talking here is about bowing to the truth of God's word and submitting to it from your heart. That's what it means to truly understand and to truly accept it. Now flip back over to 1 Timothy 1. These false teachers... They desire to be teachers of the law, people of importance, people of significance, people that are respected. But really, in their heart of hearts, they don't fully grasp either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Like blustering fools, they talk about this doctrine or that doctrine. And they can, I, I remember being at the Master's College and Guys on the wing talking about Calvinism versus Arminianism and covenantalism versus dispensationalism. My roommate, all three years in a row, I had three different guys, were all covenantal amillennialists. It was crazy. Masters of dispensational school. But some of those guys are still walking with the Lord. Some of those guys are not. And they used to be fierce articulators of this theological position, that theological position. But some of them, it was all just stuff to talk about. They hadn't truly bowed the knee to Christ in their heart without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Know your enemy. Understand who you're up against. Now rest in the fact that if you truly belong to Christ, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Even though these type of people, these false teachers, wolves, tares among the wheat, they are held captive by and to a degree empowered by the evil one, you can rest in what John writes in 1 John chapter 4, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But you still need to know the nature of your enemy. Secondly, you must understand the nature of God's good law. Understand the nature of God's good law. First, know your enemy. Second, know your weapons. Beginning in verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Okay, time out. It might seem, if you're not tracking with Paul, that this discussion of God's law comes out of nowhere. But remember, these false teachers, these false teachers, they desire to be teachers of the law. I believe what Paul is doing here is he's cutting us off at the past. He's, he's preempting maybe what we might be tempted to do and say like, Psh, well, let's just forget the law. And by the law, we mean, generally speaking, big category, God's revealed truth in the books of Moses and potentially even the entire Old Testament. Paul's saying, 
Just because these false teachers, just because these false teachers are using the law wrong, doesn't mean you should just pitch all of the Old Testament revelation out altogether. You know, I couldn't help but thinking about, as I was trying to figure out how to illustrate this, is like, I was actually thinking about Second Amendment <laughs> discussions. <laughs> just because somebody misuses something doesn't mean you should outlaw it all that altogether completely, right? Instead, I'm deciding not to go with that, I went with like the car illustration. Let's say there's a 12-year-old and he's being a total punk and he really wants to borrow his parents' car. So he steals mom's keys and he takes the SUV out for a ride and he winds up running through a field and knocking over a fence and smashing mailboxes and really causes a lot of damage to the car. And then he winds up plowing the car into another parked vehicle. It's not the car's fault. It's the 12-year-old's fault. In the same way, Paul is saying here, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Implied in there is a charge to you and me, use the law lawfully. God has given us 39 books of the Old Testament. The law is sometimes referred to as the first five books of Moses. I think, though, not just Moses is in Paul's view here, but the entirety of the Old Testament. It says, verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. The first thing you need to know about the law is that the law of God must be used correctly. The law of God must be used correctly. Correctly Use the law of God life lawfully. What does it mean to use the law of God lawfully? Well, in the book of Galatians, Paul has a lot to say about this. Because just like in the Ephesian church, you had people coming in and, and they were false teachers and they were people who were all about self-promotion. But their modus operandi, their, their, their game plan of furthering their own platform was to take God's law and to twist it. To take God's law and to make it say something that it didn't actually say. And Paul comes in in the book of Galatians and he's saying, no, 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 no. You need to stop this. There is a purpose for the law and it's not what you Judaizers are doing in the Galatian church. Well, the same thing here in the Ephesian church. In Galatians 3, 19 through 26, Paul answers this question. What's the purpose of the law? You can turn here, Galatians 3, 19, if you want, or you can just listen. Paul says, why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring, now that's a key term in the book of Galatians, the promised seed, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, Jesus. Until Jesus, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it, it, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, the righteousness would, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, another synonymous term in this context for law, but the scripture or the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, there's a lot in that 
series of verses, Galatians 3, 19 through 26. And tonight's sermon is on 1 Timothy 1, not Galatians 3. But I want to draw out three things from that paragraph that help us understand what it means to use the law lawfully. Because that takes us back to 1 Timothy. What does it mean to use the law lawfully? Well, first, the law was given to show us the holiness of God. The law was given to show us the holiness of God. Second, the law was given to show us the sinfulness of sin. And third, the law was given to show us the necessity of the Messiah. These false teachers in the Ephesian church were looking in the Old Testament for bizarre doctrines and crazy notions, secret teachings that they claimed came from the Old Testament law, but instead were coming from their own minds. And they were plaguing the Ephesian church, trying to look like Bible know-it-alls, and they were misusing the law. Peter would describe these people in 2 Peter as those who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Frankly, they're not practicing good hermeneutics. I mean, there's more to their problem than just poor hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. Really, their underlying problem is that they're wicked. They're sinful. They're all about themselves and their own glory and their own worship, and they're not about glorifying God. But in the process, they're not practicing excellent hermeneutics or accurate hermeneutics. And instead, they're twisting the scriptures. They're not using, verse 8, the law lawfully. Galatians 3 shows us the law was given to show us the holiness of God. It shows us the sinfulness of sin. And it shows us the necessity of the Messiah. That is still the function of the law today. You and I are no longer under the law. This actually opens up a whole can of worms and a separate discussion for tonight. From from tonight, you might have heard that there's a uh, tripartite division of the law. Especially when you look at the law of Moses, that there was moral and ceremonial and civil laws in Israel. That is an inaccurate way of looking at the law of Moses. The Bible does not represent in any way a three-part division of the law. In fact, the law is always represented as a unit, as a whole. The law was completely dealt with and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Top to bottom, start to finish. He fulfilled the law completely on your behalf. You are no longer under the law of Moses, which means you can wear a shirt that has mixed fabrics and you can eat shellfish. It's okay. I can't because I'm allergic, but not because it's a sin. That was a joke. I I mean, I, I am allergic. I have one bowl of clam chowder and I start feeling nauseous. Anyway, you are no longer under the law, but the law is still useful for the believer. It shows us how holy God is. It shows us how evil sin is. And consequently, it shows us we need somebody to fulfill the law on our behalf. It drives us to our knees and causes us to cry out for the Messiah. That's the lawful use of the law. Verse 8, the law must be used correctly. You still use it that way today, hopefully, when you engage in evangelism. It is not wrong to go to the Ten Commandments and to, to point somebody that you're sharing the gospel with to the Ten Commandments to show them how far short they fall. How far short you fall. We use the law that way lawfully. That brings us, secondly, to our next point, verse 9. The law was given to condemn those who practice wickedness. The law was meant to be used correctly, verse 8. Verses 9 and 10, the law was given to condemn those who practice wickedness. People need to know the bad news before they can hear the good news. I'm sure you've heard that before. People need to know just what sin looks like and how much they have sinned against the holy God. 
In fact, I don't think anybody truly grasps just how much they've sinned against the holy God. I think if any single one of us, and I, uh, this is not an original thought. I think I heard a Puritan say this one time. If any single one of us saw the depths of like our real sin, we'd be driven insane. But studying God's law actually shows us just how much, or begins to show us just how much we have sinned against God. So verses 9 and 10, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You see, the law shows us the character of God. These things, this list of things, we're going to work our way through this list. These things are not wrong just because the tablets given in Mount Sinai and the revelation that was given to Moses in Mount Sinai says they're wrong. They're not wrong just because of Mount Sinai. These things are wrong because they go against the eternal characteristic of God. Here's a helpful way to think about this. These things were wrong in the days of Noah. These things were wrong in the days of Abraham. They were wrong before Sinai. And now that the law that was given at Mount Sinai has been fulfilled completely in Jesus Christ, when he said it is finished on the cross and the veil of the temple was torn in two, they're still wrong. They're still wrong. The law of God is a helpful tool to demonstrate to people just how wrong they are. The law is not laid down for the just, Paul says, verse 9. We need to talk about this before we get into this list of wickedness. What does he mean by the just? The just is somebody who's been justified. This term just is dikaios, means righteous. It's actually used to describe God's character. He's the judge of all the earth. He always does what is right. He is perfectly righteous. But Paul here is describing humans who are just. And we know that the only way to be just in God's eyes is to be declared just in God's courtroom. This happens through the gospel. Romans 3, 21 through 26 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's good because we could never earn it through the law. But we can get God's righteousness another way. How? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you want to be just? Trust in Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that it is in Christ Jesus. Just a side note, this is for free. Romans 3, 23 through 24. We usually describe that talking about all of humanity. And yes, all of humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul here is talking talking about Christians. Otherwise, verse 24 would teach universalism. You tracking with me? Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's talking about there's no distinction between Jew and, uh, Jew and Greek in the church. Jew and Greek in the church. That's the context of Romans is actually that there was racial tension between Jews and Greeks in the church. And Paul's saying, no, 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 all. Jew and Gentile Christians, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what it means in 1 Timothy 1.9. 
The law is not laid down for the just. If you've passed from death to life, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've turned from your sins and said, I'm following Christ, if he has given you a new heart, you're just. You're no longer under the law. The law has been fulfilled on your behalf. It one time stood as a terror over you when you were in your sins. But back to 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but who's it laid down for? Who's it laid down for? Those who practice wickedness. And here we have this list. This is who needs to pay attention to the law. This is who needs to be confronted with the holiness of God. This is who needs to be terrified by the fact that they are sinful beyond recognition. And this is who needs to cry out for the Messiah. The lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, and so on and so on. Lawless. Let's just go through these descriptions quickly. Lawless. This is those who are a law unto themselves. This doesn't necessarily mean that they are openly profligate or they're just running rampant and they're engaged in all types of external debauchery. Paul will get to those people. But Jesus describes the Pharisees as lawless. Jesus says that in that great day, Matthew 7, verses 21, 22 following, many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many, many works in your name and cast out demons in your name? Let's say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To be lawless does not mean you are just openly engaged in all types of external sinful activity. It means you have set aside God's law and come up, up, come up with your own law. You're right in your own eyes. You have a code. You have a moral ethic. I'm a good person because dot, dot, dot. I'm okay because dot, dot, dot. Most people are like this. You talk to somebody in the street and you say, if you were to die tonight and stand before the Lord, would you go to heaven or hell? They say, I'd go to heaven. Why? I'm not as bad as that person. I've never abused someone. I've never raped someone. I've never done this. I've never done that. I'm a good person because dot, dot, dot. They're lawless because they've set aside God's perfect, unflinching, absolutely holy law and they've replaced it with a law unto themselves. They're right in their own eyes. That's what it means to be lawless. Pharisees are lawless. Moral people are lawless. Paul says the law is laid down for them. They need to pay attention before it's too late. Secondly, the disobedient. This is the idea of rebellious, one source says. This is, this is a fist in God's face. This goes hand in hand with lawless. But this has more of the emphasis on rebelling. Third, ungodly. Again, another resource says they have no reference, reverence, excuse me, no reverence for God. This is impiety, lack of worship, lack of reverence, sinners, people who've missed the mark, who've fallen short. Sinners here is the, uh, the word hamartia. It's the idea of a bow and arrow and you shoot the bow and arrow and you're aiming for the bullseye, fall short, miss the mark. So they're irreverent. They're a law unto themselves. They're rebelling against God's law. They miss the mark. Unholy simply means wicked, one source says. Profane. You guys know what profane means. Uh, one, one, again, another resource says common, unhallowed. This is the idea of vulgar, lack of worship. Then those who strike their fathers and mothers. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. God takes disrespect to parents very seriously. This doesn't mean you always have to do what your parents say, especially if you're a grown adult, you've established a new family, you have your new family unit. 
But it does mean you need to treat parents with respect. Those that are wicked, lost in their sin, are those who are intentionally disrespectful and dishonoring to their parents. You don't always have to give your parents everything they want, especially if their demands are sinful or unreasonable or illogical. But you need to honor them and respect them. Hand in hand with those who strike their fathers and mothers or something that we would think would be just be absolutely unacceptable, but it's right there next to fathers and striking fathers and mothers, murderers. Murderers. It's the idea of unlawfully taking a life. Jesus said, though, if you engage in anger against your brother or your sister, you're just as guilty as a murderer. Next, we see a description of sexually immoral. Sexually immoral. The Greek term here is pornos. Now, it can refer specifically to a male prostitute, but it also has a general description term. This is somebody who indulges in unlawful sexual intercourse, a fornicator. Basically, this word sexually immoral is a very broad term, and it encompasses anybody who habitually and regularly, unrepentantly engages in any type of sexual activity, period, apart from that which God has said is acceptable. And the only type of sexual activity that is acceptable is sexual intercourse between a man and a woman who have covenanted together in the covenant of marriage. That's it. So any type of looking at pornography, anything other than sexual relations with one spouse in heterosexual covenantal love is encompassed in this term, pornos. Those that continue in such sin are those that need to fear the demands of the law. Anyone who engages in any type of activity outside of God's good plan. We see that good plan, Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Proverbs 5, 15 through 23. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Proverbs 5 describes specifically God's good plan for this aspect of humanity. And that is it's, this type of intercourse is only permissible between a husband and a wife. Paul continues a more narrow category beyond just pornos. And he uses another term, men who practice homosexuality. Men who practice homosexuality. Verse 10. This Greek term is arsenokoitis. Literally means, according to Strong's, one who lies with a male as with a female. A sodomite. The same term is used in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. None of these will inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is a hot topic issue in our society. That's why we're spending a little bit more time on this word than on the other ones. In our culture, this practice is celebrated as something to be proud of. Our culture has a whole month devoted to this. It's, it's awful. In one sense, is this sin worse than any other sins? No, all sin will send you to hell. All sin will send you to hell. In another sense, is this sin against nature? Yes, That's what Romans 1 clearly says. This is something that takes God's good plan for creation and shoves that plan back in God's face and says, I want no part of it. I'm going to do the exact opposite of what you've called people to do. 
Romans 1, 24 through 28 clearly describes this as against nature. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26 of Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is an issue in our culture, and it's sadly become an issue in the church. There are those who claim that you can be a gay Christian. In 2014, a Harvard student named Matthew Vines came out with a book called God and the Gay Christian in which he championed the idea that you can be a gay Christian, that the Bible doesn't necessarily condemn homosexuality in and of itself, but abuse of homosexuality, non-monogamous homosexual behavior, non-consensual homosexual behavior. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Genesis 19, 4 through 7, is clearly describing the evilness of homosexual activity. When the two angels came to visit Lot in Sodom, and the men of Sodom acted wickedly. Leviticus 18.22 is very clear. God says to the people of Israel, you shall not lie with the males with the woman. It is an abomination. Some may say, what about same-sex attraction? Is it sinful if I have same-sex attraction, but I just don't act on it? I'm a celibate gay Christian? Colossians 3 answers that pretty definitively. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, and not just the act, but it says here, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Some people say it's wired in me. I I can't help it. I've always felt this way. And to that, I would say with compassion, I understand. I hear you. But just because something has always been true of you doesn't mean that it's not sinful. There have been people who have engaged in heterosexual pornography since they were small children, something they've always been drawn to. There are people who have been drawn towards a, since a young age towards alcohol or abusive substances, something they keep gravi- gravitating back towards. Other people have a proclivity towards profanity. Just because it's something that you've done for a long time or you've done it so often that it feels normal, it feels like it's a part of your identity, a part of who you are, does not make it good. Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's normative. Okay? Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's, you're used to it doesn't mean it's normative. It's, it should be a standard. Put to death what is earthly in you, including evil desire. There is no such thing as a gay Christian. Just like there's no such thing as a drunk Christian. You can be a Christian who has to fight against a certain type of sin, but you cannot identify as your sin. You cannot You shouldn't walk in sin that Christ died for. we got to keep going. Paul says here, enslavers. Enslavers. This is the idea of kidnapper for the purpose of enslaving. Now, there's a whole discussion we could have on the issue of slavery in the scriptures. Suffice it to say, this word would condemn the type of evil and wicked slavery that took place in the American slave trade and the British slave trade. And frankly, the slave trade that was going on all over the world in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s. It's evil. It's abominable. 
to capture somebody against their will, to transport them to another place and to force them to serve you in lifelong servitude. The Old Testament system did provide an opportunity for somebody who was financially in dire straits to submit themselves towards a type of slavery. Some instances of that look more like the idea of indentured servitude that we see in American colonial history. But the type of slavery that kidnaps somebody against their will, transports them, and forces them into lifelong servitude is clearly condemned here. Sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars. We don't need to describe that too much. You should know what that means. Any type of deception, any type of falsehood. Christians are called to speak truth and love. Perjurers, that's a specific type of lying. Lying under oath, lying in a court. And then he says here, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The law is laid down for those who engage in all these types of these things. And then just in case we missed anything, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, whole teaching, teaching that comes from God's word. God is calling all men everywhere to repent. And maybe there might be an unbeliever in this room tonight who looks at this list and says, no, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. Never done that. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. This last phrase catches all of us. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, what goes against what God has revealed to us in his Bible, we need to hear the thunder of the law so that we can hear the sweet message of Calvary. One Puritan said this, and again, I don't remember which one said it. Men need to hear the thunder of Sinai so they can hear the sweet song of Calvary. Which brings us to our final point. The law exists in perfect harmony with the gospel. This is what we use to confront wolves, false teachers, people creating trouble in the church and outside the church. And we do so kindly. We do so with compassion. We do so, verse 5, with the aim of not just proving our point or winning an argument, but hopefully we, we present the word of God to somebody so that the power of God and the spirit of God would take the word of God and transform people. That's verse 5, right? But you need to do so in a way that honors God. And you use his tools. You use the law. And the law is not contrary to the gospel. It actually is in harmony with the gospel. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, some have said that the law and the gospel are antithetical to one another. And it's true. On one level, they do seem to preach seemingly different messages. The law says the sinner must die. The law says the sinner must die forever in hell. The gospel says there's life for those who repent and believe. And the reason why these things are not antithetical but are in harmony is because Christ fulfilled the law for us. Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, it says this. I love this description. The writer of Hebrews says to those, most of them were Christians. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Previously in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews said that Abel's blood cried out. Even though he was dead, he still speaks. And what did it cry out for? Justice. Kill the sinner. Bring judgment upon the sinner. Jesus' blood. The gospel. 
speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Forgive the sinner. Let the sinner go free. That's the gospel. God is holy. You and I have sinned and violated his holiness. We've fallen short time and time again every day of our lives. We've gone against the perfect holiness of God. But God sent his son, fully God and fully man, to be one of us to take on our sin on the cross, completely fulfilling the law in his act of righteousness and completely taking our punishment in what he experienced as he hung there on the cross for three hours. He yielded up his spirit. He was buried. He died. He, he died. He was buried. He rose again three days later. And now he's calling all men everywhere to repent. That is the gospel. And it brings God glory. It brings us to our last section of our last verse. This message is the gospel, the good news of the glory of the blessed God with which I, Paul, has been entrusted. Paul sees himself as a messenger just as he began this section. He's an apostle bringing a message about hope and forgiveness and change to all who repent and believe. And ultimately, it abounds in God's glory. How do you fight the good fight? We need to know your enemy and you need to know your weapons, the law, which is in perfect harmony with the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time we have here tonight. We thank you for what we see here in 1 Timothy 1. Please help us to engage in the fight in a way that would honor you. Pray this in your name. Amen.